Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and have a seat. So good to be with you this morning. And uh, I know that it's been a little bit while uh, since you've been together because of the recent Omicron uh, surge. But this morning, uh, roughly 4,000 Nazarenes all across our district are gathering to worship, to praise God. Some people are joining online. Some people are in person. We on this district have about 90 Nazarene congregations that worship in 18 different languages. Uh, Globally, there are about 2.6 million Nazarenes and, of course, many more uh, Christians, believers, followers of Jesus who belong to uh, various other traditions. And so you really are uh, part of something so much bigger than what is happening uh, right here in this room. And, and I, for one, take great encouragement and comfort in knowing that God is at work in all of these different places, including in this room this morning. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we invite you to speak a word of encouragement and truth, a word of instruction to us, Lord, that will grow to bear fruit for your glory and for the good of our neighbors. Jesus, you have saved us and you are saving us even now. You are continuing that work of uh, renewal and transformation in our hearts that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus because Christ in us is the hope of glory and we are your body, we are your hands and feet. We are your ambassadors. We are your witnesses in this world. And so we gather here not only to worship you, but to be formed by you for a life of holiness and love and service. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, again, my name is Albert, and uh, some of you I may not have met before. It's been a little while since I've been to this church in person. I was able to Uh, preach online uh, during the pandemic uh, with you. Uh, In the spring of 2020, as we all know, the world turned upside down uh, with uh, the COVID-19 virus and church buildings were uh, shut down for months. Many of them were shut down for over a year. uh, And a lot has changed. A whole lot has changed since then. Uh, We've been working from home. We've been uh, distance learning. We've had online worship. Uh, Some of us, we all know what Zoom fatigue means now, right? Uh, Social distancing, mask mandates, toilet paper shortages. And then on top of all of that, we've lived through a series of events in the last couple of years that have exposed and I think intensified the divisions in our culture. Uh, The death of George Floyd. The, the 2020 election, the Capitol riots on January 6th, the, the COVID vaccine, all of these things kind of ex- have exposed and intensified divisions in our culture. And a lot of us have experienced uh, significant pain or trauma. Uh, some of you have been on the front lines of this pandemic. Uh, others had to completely change the way that they work. Like think about teachers and what they, how they've had to adapt. Businesses suffered. A lot of people lost their jobs. We had one congregation, one of our Hispanic churches, at one point had 90% unemployment in that one church. Uh, some of us have, many of us have lost people that we care about, that we love. 
So a lot has happened since the last time I came to see you. And before we go any further, I just wanted to take a breath. Just recognize this has been a very, really difficult, hard season. And to give God thanks for getting us through it. So it really is good to be with you. I'm really grateful, so grateful for the opportunity to be with you this morning. But the truth is, not everybody has been eager to come back to church. The Bay Area, before the pandemic, had one of the least church-going populations in the country. According to some statistics, only about 3% of our neighbors actually actively go to church on a regular basis. Overall, church membership in the United States is falling off a cliff. Uh, Just 47% of Americans now say they belong to a church. That doesn't mean they go. It just means that they say they belong to a church. Uh, And that's down from 70% just 20 years ago. And this statistic is from before COVID. Now, since the pandemic started, about one out of three practicing Christians have stopped going to church completely. Experts have predicted that one out of five churches will eventually permanently close due to the impact of the pandemic. And from what we're seeing, that may actually end up happening. Um, Many of our churches have held on, uh, but they're struggling, and some aren't going to make it. Uh, Although our more affluent churches have recovered financially, uh, a lot of congregations in poorer communities, especially among our black and Hispanic sisters and brothers, uh, are still suffering financially. And now that churches have been gathering in person again, many of them have seen their attendance cut in half since before the pandemic. So the world has changed. And one of the biggest things that has changed is what people are willing to do with their time. We are going through what a lot of people call the great resignation. People are quitting their jobs in record numbers because it turns out that people are are fed up with working for uh, lousy pay or under lousy conditions or for a lousy boss, and we just have like less tolerance for people or activities that feel like they're a waste of our time or our money. Life is too short. And so people are saying, you know what? If I've got to put pants on and go outside, and it better be worth it, right? (laughs) Better be worth it. So if you are here today, chances are uh, you are among a shrinking community of people that still believes being part of a local church is worth your time. It's worth getting out of bed. It's worth getting dressed, at least your top half. Right? If uh, you're online and your camera's on, right? it's, it's, it's worth uh, getting the kids out the door and driving to church and finding a parking spot and, and uh, being with your church family, maybe being part of a, a small group during the week. It's worth it. That's still important to you. And Jesus said that there would be some people who hear the word and at once they receive it with joy, uh, but then they're like uh, seeds scattered on shallow ground. They don't have any roots, and when things get tough, he said they fall away. Uh, but that's not you. You're still here. But maybe you've gotten comfortable over the past uh, couple of years. It was nice sleeping in on Sundays, worshiping from home, doing other things while you listen to the sermon, right? Or skipping out when you're tired. And I get it. I really do. We have four kids. And uh, that, you know, it was nice just to be able to turn on camera and participate uh, from church, uh, in church. And so I'm not judging anyone, anybody. I get it. Um, For a lot of us, the risk is not that we're going to drop out entirely. I think the risk is that we will become unproductive 
in our faith. And Jesus said that also happens to some of us, that we get distracted by life's worries and, uh, or, or the pursuit of wealth or, or pleasure, and as a result, we fail to bear fruit. Nothing really, really comes out of our faith. And then Jesus says that there are some people who hear the good news of the kingdom, and, and they take it to heart, and, and, and they become agents of heaven. And they believe the gospel, and they, they live like it's true. They hear God's word not just as comfort for themselves, but as a call to action. And Jesus says that those people produce much fruit. They give back 30, 60, or 100 times what God has invested in them. They are a gift. They are a blessing. They are a living example of the resurrection power of Jesus. Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, our local and state health departments had to decide which businesses uh, and activities were essential and which ones were not. What had to stay open for the sake of the community and what could shut down without much impact. So grocery stores, essential. Hair salons, not essential. Uh, Hospitals, essential. Movie theaters, not essential. And then when they got to churches, they had to make a decision. And they said, not essential. In their minds, we were closer to being like a movie theater than we are to being a hospital. Now, I want to be fair, they shut down the schools as well. Okay, So the issue was more about the health risks of having large group gatherings of people in an enclosed space for a long period of time. I get that. But I, don't think, I really don't think it's a stretch. Uh, to say that many of our non-religious neighbors don't consider churches essential to the functioning uh, of a healthy society. They just don't. So my question today is, what if that changed? What if that changed? Here's what I'm wondering, and I think it has a lot to do with what we hope to see happen in this district and in this city. What does it look like for the church to be essential? And by that, I don't mean that church is essential for us. I'm not talking about protecting our religious freedoms that we ought to have the right to gather because church is essential for us. I mean, what does it look like for the church to be essential in our community? Because that's actually what God intended for us. Jesus says his disciples are to be salt and light in the world. The world needs salt. It is essential to life, not just because it makes things tasty. We literally need it to survive. It, 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 it regulates uh, our, our body fluids and, and, and proper nerve and muscle function uh, and controls blood pressure. And our bodies can't produce it on their own. We need to get it from outside sources through our diet. We need it. And can you imagine a world without light? What if if we had no light? The the earth would be just a a cold and lifeless rock. So God intended for the church to be essential for human flourishing, just like salt and light, essential for the advancement of the gospel. We are salt and light. And I wonder if people might think that being part of a church that is like that, that is essential for life, is worth their time, would be worth it. I wonder if that's the kind of church that I would not want to miss being a part of for anything because it is essential for my life and for the life of my community. I wouldn't miss it for anything. I, I would t- 
take every opportunity to, to be with my church family, to serve alongside them, to worship, to pray, to study, to serve. Now, I want to clarify, we cannot become this kind of church without being fully surrendered to and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can't. It's God's church. It is God who calls us. It is God who equips us. It is God who directs us. But we were created to be essential. I am convinced of that. And so I want to focus today on a particular aspect of what it means to be an essential church. It's described in the book of James. James was a powerful voice in the early church. He was an apostle of the church of Jerusalem and the younger brother of Jesus. And he wrote a letter to all the 12 tribes of Israel who had been sown as seed among the nations. So he's, he's writing to believers that had converted from Judaism and were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So this is not just a letter for one particular congregation. It really is for all believers. It's for all of us. And James has some very important things to say about what authentic faith looks like, especially when Christians are in the minority, when we live among people who don't know Jesus. And so I'm going to start with a verse that many of us are very, very familiar with, uh, and, uh, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. Uh, many of us have heard this verse from James 2.26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith without deeds is dead. Now, that's a very clear statement, but it takes a little bit of explanation. Christians believe that every person is complicit in the sin that plagues our world. None of us are truly innocent. God created us to relate to him and to each other in a certain way, a way that is holy and loving and good, but we don't always do that, and we hurt people, and they hurt us. Uh, sometimes we do it intentionally, so we're all guilty of personal sin, but we're also guilty of corporate sin. We participate in systems that hurt people, systems that are good for some people and bad for others. And we could take the time to learn how to not participate in those systems or to, or to challenge those systems, but often we don't. And so we are all complicit in sin. And God tells us through his word that our sins have separated us from God and from each other. It is poison the world that we live in, and we cannot fix it. We can't fix it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves right with God and with our neighbors. But God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him through Christ. Jesus took all of our sins and transgressions upon himself when he died on the cross. And when he rose to new life, he invited us to rise to new life with him. And to all who trust in him, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth and empower us to live a holy and a loving life. So Jesus leads us in a different way of seeing and living and loving. Jesus is making all things new, beginning with us. And all of this is a free gift of grace from God. We did nothing to deserve it, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. So when James says faith without deeds is dead, he's not saying that we can somehow earn God's love or forgiveness or mercy. We cannot fix ourselves, but we can live into 
our new identity as sons and daughters of God and as citizens of heaven. We can participate in what God is doing in the world. That's what it means to have a living faith. And a lot of you, have, you know this truth. You've been freed by this truth. It's your story. But what kind of deeds, what kind of deeds is James talking about? What kind of work can we do that is a sign that we are alive in Christ, that the Spirit is at work in us? And the answer is important. It's important to our vision for the church in Northern California. Earlier, James declares, let's, let's look at this context. He, earlier, he declares what real living faith looks like. In James 1.22, he says, Don't merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And he says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James says that those with living faith are able to control their tongues. What we say and how we say it matters. We are, we are to be communities of grace. And he says earlier that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. So when you see someone who claims to be religious but has a bad temper and cannot control their tongue, take note, that person's religion is worthless. Living faith is not rude. It's not insensitive. It's not cruel. It is gracious and kind. James also says that religion that, is, that God considers pure and faultless is to take care of uh, orphans and widows in their distress who in Jesus' day would have been among the most vulnerable people in society. Christians are to identify with people on the margins, to care for people who are in distress. We are to be essential workers in a broken world. Those are the kinds of deeds that indicate we have a living faith. And then James writes that pure religion is about keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, a lot of people think that this means that we should avoid certain activities. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't watch this movie, don't read that book, don't associate with these kinds of people. But Jesus says it's not what goes into our mouths that defiles us. It's what comes out of our mouths that is evidence that we are unclean. In other words, what is in our hearts? So this is what he's saying. He says we need to be on guard against the world's way of thinking by ideologies that produce bad character. And I want to be clear. There are some ideas that come from non-Christians that are actually more in line with the teachings of Jesus than sometimes what's being taught from some of our pulpits. Just because a Christian said it doesn't mean it's automatically right. And just because a non-Christian said it doesn't mean it's automatically wrong. Our reference point is Jesus. And so James is warning us to avoid having our hearts polluted by uncritically adopting the values and the behaviors of the world when they come into conflict with those of heaven. So for example, when the world says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, we say, Jesus told us to turn the other cheek. I will forgive as I have been forgiven. When the world says, you need to look out for number one, 
We say, I will do nothing out of selfish ambition, or, uh, but rather in humility, I will value others above myself, not looking to my interests only, but to the interests of others, because this is the example set before me by my Lord. When the world says, your problem is not my problem, we say, I will bear your burdens, for in this way I fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. So religion that is pure and faultless identifies with the weak and the vulnerable of the world. So we need to reject worldly ideas about wealth and power, about beauty and privilege, about who and what is valuable and important. Worldly thinking says, me before you. Kingdom's thinking says, you before me. Because this is the way of Christ, who made himself nothing and took on the nature of a servant and went to the cross for the sake of the world. Dennis Kinslaw, a former president of Asbury College and a Wesleyan holiness scholar, uh, said, Satan disguises submission to himself under the ruse of personal autonomy. He never asks us to become his servants. Never once did the serpent say to Eve, I want to be your master. The shift in commitment is never from Christ to evil. It is always from Christ to self. And instead of his will, self-interest now rules, and what I want reigns. And that is the essence of sin. Now, I want to go a little bit further in the text because these are the verses that are right before James' declaration that faith without deeds is dead. What kind of deeds indicate that we have a living faith? Well, he tells us, and, and these words really speak for themselves. In James 2, he says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Oh, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, uh, You stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And then, just a few verses later, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to him, Go in peace. Keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That is the context. So what kind of deeds show that we have a living faith when we treat the poor with honor? When we give them the best seat in the house, 
when we refuse to give preferential treatment to the wealthy or powerful or famous among us, loving our neighbors as ourselves. If someone has needs, uh, needs clothes or food, we don't just pray for them. We do something about their situation. John the Baptist warned the crowds. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Right? When John the Baptist is out, he's, he's preaching in the wilderness. He's telling people, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And the people say, well, what should we do? Give me an example. And John says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. John Wesley uh, once said, it's not a sin to have two coats. It's a sin to have two when your brother doesn't have any. God loves the poor. When Jesus announced his ministry, he quoted Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The first group that he mentions. In Isaiah 1.17, the prophet writes, learn to do this on behalf of God. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. In Proverbs 3.27, it says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you, when you already have it with you. And so religion that is pure and faultless, faith that is living and not dead, prioritizes the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized. We are called to welcome them, to serve them, to empower them, to heal them, to love them, regardless of race or class or gender or culture. The church does not exist for us. We are the church, and we exist for the sake of the world. And the world is full of people. Even here, in an affluent area like this, the world is full of people who have been left out and left behind in our culture's incessant pursuit of more. The vision of the NorCal District Church of the Nazarene is to be a kingdom of priests and a family on mission. Missional churches are essential churches. And they ask two questions. A church that is missional will ask two questions. Number one, to whom am I called? To whom am I called? And we all have a sphere of influence, right? We all have a sphere of influence, but we should have a special place in our lives for the poor. And when it comes to issues of equality and justice, we have to always stand on the side of the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized, never with the, poor or with the powerful and the privileged. Do the rich and the powerful need Jesus? Yes, absolutely. But the call in Scripture to them is to step down, is to humble themselves, to give away so that the poor and vulnerable may be lifted up because this is a sign of the kingdom. This is what heaven will look like, a place where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. All are welcome. Nobody is without. Inclusion and justice are an affirmation of the dignity of every human being who is made in the image of God. And then the second question is, with whom am I called? We are not individuals on our own little journey doing individual acts of devotion and compassion. We are a family on mission together. And so we invite others to participate in what God is doing in the world, even if they don't call Jesus Lord yet. 
We are looking for community partners. Who, I, who in our city wants to make earth look a little bit more like heaven? Who in our, that's what we envision for all of our churches, that we would gather up all the essential workers in our communities, all the people that are committed to serving the poor and the vulnerable, all the people that love their neighbors, all of them. We want to gather them up and work together. We want every Nazarene church to be an epicenter of kingdom compassion. Every one of our churches. And our prayer is that every person that walks into this place is either an instrument of God's love or a recipient of God's love. And that includes you. Most of us are both. (laughs) Most of us are coming in needing to receive God's love, but we also want to be an instrument of God's love. And we are looking for more people who are like-minded, who have a burden for the city. And so I want to suggest three things briefly as we kind of wrap up. Uh, three things that we need to become this kind of, of church that is essential to the well-being of our cities. First of all, we need open hearts. We need open hearts. Our hearts can't be closed. They have to be open, open to God, open to people, open even to our enemies, and their hearts need to be open to us. And so we're looking for people with whom we may have favor, who seem to respond positively to us. Not everybody will, but you're going to meet somebody whose heart is open to you just as yours is open to them. Lean into those friendships. Lean into those relationships. Cultivate those open hearts. And secondly, we need open hands. Open hands. We must have open hands in order to receive the gifts that God wants to give to us. Like children coming to our Father. Physical gifts like food and clothing and shelter and possessions, but also spiritual gifts like grace and hospitality and kindness and the gift of teaching or the gift of leadership. Lord, give us these things. We have open hands to receive. But then we also have open hands in order to give and to share these things with others. Jesus, when he sent out the 12 uh, with these instructions, he said, proclaim this message. The kingdom of God has come near. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to raise the dead. I want you to cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely have received, freely give, freely give. And so we need to open our hands to receive from God, to share with others. We open our hands to welcome people. We open our hands to embrace people. We open our hands to help people. And then the third thing that we need is open doors. We need open doors. That door is open right now, probably for air circulation. Okay? But I love that it's open because it communicates something. If if a door is open, what does it tell you? It says, come in. It says, I trust you. I don't have a closed door that's locked and bolted and shuttered. It's open. It means come in, right? It says we trust you. But it also, an open door, a door opens for two reasons. One is to let people in. The other is so that you can go out. And so that open door allows air to flow and is a symbol of the Spirit flowing through this place and sending us out. Open hands. Open hearts, open hands, and open doors, especially toward the poor. In fact, our our founder, Dr. Phineas Brzee, believed that the Church of the Nazarene must not only be a church to the poor, but a church of the poor and a church for the poor. He said, let the Church of the Nazarene be true to its commission, 
not great and elegant buildings, but to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and wipe away the tears of sorrowing and gather jewels for his diadem. He went on to say, the gospel comes to a multitude without money and without price, and the poorest of the poor are entitled to a front seat in the church of the Nazarene. So we have a church of the Nazarene right here in Cupertino. And this city needs us. It needs us to open our hearts and to open our hands and to open our doors. These literal doors, but also the doorways of our homes, our businesses, to build relationships in our communities so that the love of God can be made known. We want this church to be essential to its community. And that's you. You are essential workers, essential carriers of God's grace and good news. And the book of Acts records that the early church enjoyed the favor of all the people. And we pray that that will be true here. That you will have the favor of all the people. And we have a lot of good and very important work to do. I want to thank you for helping to carry forth the spirit of who we are as Nazarenes. We are called to be a holy people, salt and light, a church for the poor and of the poor, essential to the flourishing of our cities. And you are helping us to be that. So I want to thank you for helping to make the church essential. Find the people who are hungry for God. And extend the hand of friendship. Make yourself known. We come here so that we can be confronted by God, that we might grow in our love and adoration for God, but also so that we can receive instructions for how God wants us to bear witness to his kingdom in the world. And so I pray that that's the case today, that when you walk out of here, we recognize that we are a family on mission. Uh, Bailey's going to come up and lead us in song. Uh, let me just close in prayer. God, we are so grateful. We get to be a part of what you're doing in this world. Lord, we don't want to have a faith that is fruitless, that doesn't produce the things you want to see happen in the world. We, we want to have a living faith. And so, Lord, we, we know that that means our hearts need to be aligned to yours. Our minds cannot be polluted by the way that the world thinks. We see people through your eyes. And that means that we have a special, tender place in our hearts for the poor, for the marginalized, for those who are hurting Often it is those people that you say will see the kingdom. Because they're, they're hungry for it. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you would help us to see our community in a whole new way. To see this neighborhood as our mission field. The most important work that we do begins as soon as we leave these doors. 
So thank you, Lord God, for the privilege of participating in your good work. In Jesus' name.